Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. We have three guests for you this week. We open with our standing date, our good friend, race engineer supreme, Jeff Brown from the Core Autosport IMSA DPI program. We're talking about driver feedback, topic we've covered before on the show, but there are so many nuances to it. Honestly, it's something that Jeff as a current decades-long engineer supreme and your host here, a former race engineer minus the supreme part, definitely can tell you that there are many ways that drivers and engineers interact, some of them effective, some of them not so. Jeff gives us the inside on what he wants from a driver. So while this might not be the learning hardcore things about engineering episode, since you will most likely be working with drivers if you have aspirations of being a race engineer, or if you are a driver who's wanting to know how to better communicate with your race engineer, Jeff gives us the inside story. Second on the list, we have our friend Jack Hawksworth from the AIM Vassar Sullivan IMSA GTD program, the Lexus RCFs. Jack spent last weekend becoming a NASCAR Xfinity driver at Mid-Ohio with the Joe Gibbs Racing Team in their Toyota. Had to speak with Jack about that. Some real fun there. And also his thoughts about wrapping up the 2019 GTD Championship, where, how high, what he thinks the AIM Vassar Sullivan team might be able to achieve as it appears the title is all but sewn up by their rivals at Myershank Racing. Then we close with Steve Bortolotti, moving a bit north to Canada with Steve in GTD as well. Steve runs the FAF Motorsports team winners of the last two rounds in their glorious lumberjack liveried Porsche 911 GT3R. So we go from Jeff to Jack to Steve, and that is our show for the week. And as we start to wrap up with Steve, you'll hear the music fade in. And that's the cue that we are done until next week. Thanks again to Cooper Tires. Thanks again to the Justice Brothers. And if you haven't already, please check out our MarshallPruittPodcast.com site. All the ways you can subscribe. More than 600 episodes waiting for your listening enjoyment. And off we go with our pal, a friend of mine now for almost 30 years, Jeff Brown. Jeff Brown, it's time to get smarter, courtesy of my favorite white-haired race engineer, that being (laughs) you, of course. So we're going to do a topic that we have touched on before, but there's so many angles to race engineering, driver interaction, and so on, chassis setup, that we can keep finding these interesting little threads. And your idea was to discuss the various ways drivers communicate to engineers what engineers are looking for from drivers in terms of communication, style, information, and whatnot, and also some different scenarios based on track needs that you would look for or hope to get different forms of feedback from drivers. Among those various options there, where should we start? Um, yeah, it's a... It's maybe with what engineers, what an engineer would look for in a test driver. And, and let's talk about testing, developing, you know, and, and when I mean testing, I also mean practice sessions on a race weekend before an event while you're trying to set the car up and all of that. Anything short of actually competitive racing for position. Um, and, and that's engineers. You know, you always hear about engineer-driver relationships and how long they've been together and things like that, and being on the same page and understanding each other. But, and and I think you kind of people kind of get that. You know, it would be like a, a whatever a, a quarterback receiver or a quarterback coach or something like that. It's kind of the same thing. But I was thinking specifically what an engineer needs from his driver when we're practicing and. Oh, it, it's a lot of it is a, it, it might not be as engineering based as a lot of people would think, you know, I don't need a, another vehicle dynamicist or a, a, you know, aerodynamicist or a guy who can explain all the formulas and equations and 
draw it out um, on a whiteboard for me. I don't need that guy driving it. What I really need is a guy who can describe what the car is doing in super detail, but not too much detail because you can get lost with the amazing amount of detail. And what I've always said is for me, the perfect driver is a driver who can guide his engineer. It's not tell him what to change. You know, I don't want a driver come in and say, I need 150 pounds, different front spring and three clicks, a rear low speed bump and the car will be perfect. That's not, that's not what I don't think any race engineer wants. But now we, let we, me ask, why not? Mm-hmm. Why not? And, and uh, I mean, I know the reason, but why yeah, is that something you would push back against if the, if you did start working with a driver who was effectively trying to solve all the problems for you, and as we've mentioned before, turn you into a uh, a short order cook, someone at the, at the uh, McDonald's drive through window, taking taking notes. Right? Give me number two with a medium Dr Pepper and uh, a large fry. Yeah, I, you know, I think the main reason I don't want that is because I have spent the last whatever two weeks two months two years thinking about this car and what we're going to be dealing with this weekend and what direction i want to go i've had my if i'm in a big enough team i've had my simulation people working on it the this puzzle for the last two weeks or between races i've had my um traction control guy and my um, assistant engineer going through different changes that potentially I think will help. And, and so collectively we have, you know, anywhere from two to five people who have been thinking about this for two weeks. Chances are my driver is not just going to get it exactly right and know what we've gone through to, to change. Now he can guide us. And, and that's what I need is a a guide of what direction and i'll give a simple example you could come in and maybe he thinks the car is too soft at the front or it's moving too much at the front well and that's what's slowing it down that's what's keeping him from going quicker around a specific corner or a set of corners the thing is i may have 20 different changes that i could make to the car that would re that would stiffen that or reduce that movement. What I need is some guidance. If, and I'm really asking my driver to try to eliminate some of the things, you know? So if I have 20 things, if I can get him to say, Hey, I think it's only, and the engineer has to ask the right questions. You know, I could say, okay, it's moving too much. Is that when you put the brake on? No, I think it's when it's, when I turn the steering wheel, it it starts to roll. Well, now I've eliminated half of my items that I would norm that I could do and I'm down to 10. And so if, if he can guide me toward maybe springs or shocks and get me down to five items, then I'll be able to select from our simulation work we've done from my pre-planning that we've done. I'll be able to select what I think would be most effective of those five to give him what he needs. So a lot of good drivers will be very detailed at describing what they want the car to do and what it's doing and describe that difference. They'll say, you know, if you can get the car to do this, I can go much quicker. Or they'll say, I turn the steering wheel, I put a brake on, I turn the steering wheel, the car does this but I really want it to do that. And, and and now I have myself and my other people that are on the intercom listening, and we can come up with some quick pre-planned ideas that we've been thinking about for two weeks to kind of pull out and apply to solve that problem. Because I know if I can get the car to do what the driver wants it to do, he'll get the most out of it that he can until that point, he's going to be struggling and frustrated and annoyed that it's not doing what he wants it to do. And, you know, with the level of drivers that I've been fortunate enough to work with, I know that if I get it to do what they want it to do, we'll be quick because they're, they're all fast guys. 
And so I need some guidance. I need some, some help. Uh, and, and drivers are so different in how they can describe that. Some are super visual. They'll want to sit down with the in-car video with me and just talk me through every corner. And they'll do slow motion, step by step, frame by frame. See what I'm doing here? See when I turn the wheel? See, I, I do this, but the car does this, and they'll, fast, uh, you know, they'll step through a couple more frames. Right there. See that? Back up. See it? forward back forward back forward back see that see that that's what i don't want well that's great info other drivers are more like kinesthetic you know it's a feel thing i can feel it fall over i can feel it roll i can feel it do this again fantastic fantastic info because i'm trying to fix the car not necessarily to make it go faster based on what the simulator says or what my calculations say, because it's important that it, it do what the driver wanted to do. So I always ask my drivers, describe what it's doing. Tell me what you want it to do and let me work on it. So one of the generalisms about management, and this isn't specific to motor racing, but you'll, you'll hear it in any office setting, any, any kind of setting where managing of multiple people and personalities is required. And that is, you have to adapt. You have to adjust. You cannot manage and lead an entire group with each person spoken to and handled in an identical manner. Well, (laughs) you can, but you are not going to be bound for success. Ultimately, some people need a little more, coaching some folks need some more flowery words to get the best out of them some don't care they're just mission target oriented save all the fluff tell us about how that dynamic does or does not play when we're talking about race engineer interacting with drivers or maybe even new drivers because i would think jeff while there would, there'll always be a little bit of accommodating, I would think you would be spending time if needed to say, hey, so you're giving me the car's dynamics broken down into five millimeter increments going around each corner. I don't need that. Or you're giving me super generalisms. I don't need that. I'm curious where the coddle, the individual plays from a race engineer standpoint or how much you try and standardize folks coming at you with different communication styles to make sure that you get what you want. You're effectively training folks to give what you need. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And as you say, everybody's different in how they describe things and how they, how they, how they do things. And, and I would say the best, uh, example is if I have a young driver who's not super experienced and, you know, coming out of the lower formulas or lower ranks of sports car racing, then I look at it as my job and, and it's a selfish job. If I can get him to be better at it, I'll be able to make the car go quicker and we as a team will do better and he'll go faster and everybody will be happy. So uh, I find a lot of young drivers trying almost like trying too hard it's if you can drive a car quickly you know you get some of these blazing kids come out and they if they can drive it quickly just describe what it's doing don't try to be the engineer don't try to give me all the details and so i'll tell them that you know i'm not gonna uh, i'm doing them a disservice in that situation if i'm coddling them or if i'm adapting to them because they're going to go to the next step and the next step and or to the next team and not be able to work with their engineer to set the car up so i'll explain what i want and i'll a a race engineer a skill of a good race engineer i think is a to be a very good question asker you have to ask the right questions that kind of draw that out of the driver not give him the answer so that he answers what you've just told him, but give him inquire into what he's feeling, what he's doing, what the car is doing. 
and ask maybe a question in two different ways, five minutes apart. See if you get the same answer, not to test him. You're not trying to trick him, but he's describing a very, um, I don't know, a very non-scientific thing. He's describing a feel and a sense and a, and things are happening very fast. So you have to ask the right questions of each driver. And as you start to learn the drivers, sports car racing is a great example. Three different, you can have three or four different drivers. Uh, I've never, I've had some that are really close and I wish that I could have drivers that, that describe things very similarly because it just makes the job easier and better and, and more effective. Sure. But a lot of times, like you said, you have drivers with different backgrounds. Somebody comes out of, you know, 10 years of, um, GT cars and ends up in a prototype with another driver who's been 10 years in a prototype. They'll have different ways of describing things and different, um, levels. What, what's rolly for one guy, for the GT guy might, or for the prototype guy might not be rolly at all for the GT guy. So you have to kind of race engineer has to adapt as well to kind of calibrate his feeling because one guy says, wow, the car is really rolling. The next very next driver says, man, the car is just bolts to the ground. Doesn't move an inch. You're like, well, that can't be somebody's wrong. Not necessarily wrong. The race engineer has to understand the background of the driver and then, and again, then ask more questions and try to draw that out of the driver, you know, specifically and understand his background and his, his history. So knowing that we have, I guess, native, if you want to say that native ways of looking at conversations, how the flow needs to happen back and forth so that you can get what you need. It's interesting, Jeff, and this may be another area to explore. It really is a one-way thing, meaning (laughs) you need the drivers to give you what you need to make the car better for them. You don't necessarily need to do the same in explaining every little thing you'll be doing after they've given you input. While it is certainly a two-way relationship, there is a little bit of selfishness here. I need you to tell me how to make the best recipe. I'm not necessarily then going to waste a lot of time telling you how I'm going to cook the dang thing. <laughs> it is, and again, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, but tell folks about that relationship because while you want to be the nicest, most welcoming, tell me everything type person, there's also an aspect of, look, I got work to do. Uh, don't expect me to sit here and then run back every single thing I'm going to do and why and how and what it should do here, there, and everywhere. There is a little bit of selfishness involved. For sure. For sure. And the good drivers understand that and they don't really, you know, good and experienced. The older they get, the more they're like, you know, they know how this is going to work and they expect it to work that way. Um, I've always been one to be, you know, Hey, I'm going to make some decisions here and they're going to be time sensitive decisions. And I want you to ask any questions that you have and why I'm doing it, what the thinking behind it was, ask those questions, but also understand you will likely get during the weekend, the answer of, I can't explain it right now. Let's talk about that later. We'll always come back to it. I'll never blow them off because if my driver gets smarter and understands why I did something in one direction and he's smarter, he will be able to give me better feedback and understand why that worked and why that didn't work. So I want him to get smarter, but under the time conditions, a lot of times we just got to, we just got to go. And along those lines, this is a debate. I think we might've touched on this, but depending on what kind of driver I have and what my relationship over time has been with them, uh, I will, and I, I bet half the race engineers would disagree with me on this, maybe more, about telling a driver what change you made and what you expected to do. Again, we're not trying to trick the driver, but if he's, if I make a change for the car to try to solve his problem, 
I will, with Colin especially, but with any of the top pro guys that I run, I will tell them, here's the change I've made. Here's what I expected to do. And then I'll say something like, please focus on that in this particular corner because, and then I let them go out. But the reason I tell them that is because if, if I can hyper-focus them on this change and what I expect it to do, and they come back and say, yep, I paid super attention to it, and it did not do that, definitely did not do that, then I'm much smarter. If I don't tell them and just say, okay, go try this, and then they come back into the pits and I say, well, how was it? And they say, well, I don't know. It was, uh, it was about the same. <laughs> that's the worst. You know, the, uh, we've said yeah. this before, but that's the worst response ever. Good. Right. Good. All right. You've just given me an absolutely nothing burger here. I, that's not going to help me do anything. Right. Exactly. I need so so that's why I'll focus them on it. And and some engineers will say, oh, but then you've you know you've given them the answer already. And you know this isn't a test. This is the two of us trying to get better and understand whether it was better. And I want to know if specifically it helped this area of the car in this particular corner. And if it didn't, that's as great an answer as if it did, because we're, again, we're trying to cut these 20 changes down to the one that works. And I may try a change that's not designed to specifically absolutely solve his problem, but it might be free practice one, the second change of the weekend. And if I do this change, it's going to eliminate half the changes I had programmed for the weekend immediately. And we can move on to other things. And so I need a really good answer from that. And I need him to really be sensitive to that area and that change and understand whether that's better or worse. So I like to tell my driver what it's going to do. Um, and, and some of the best drivers, when we're testing, a lot of times will even tell me if it's a Let's say we're trying three different arrow bits on the front of the car, and he's seen them all because we had the mechanics had them in their hand. Sometimes, I'll give a better example. I had Alan Kowicki, Alan Kowicki and I were running stock cars, and there was a test we were doing with different shock absorbers, and he could see them because they were, they were, they looked different, and he would come in and purposely close his eyes while we put the shocks on the car. So he couldn't see what they are because he didn't want to be influenced. Now, so, and this is, this was a top guy. This was when he was at the top of his short track career just before he went NASCAR racing. And, and, you know, he, he didn't want to be influenced. He didn't have a preference for one or the other, but you know, he had seen the dyno curves. Him and I had run them on the dyno. Him and I had built them ourselves and, and he just didn't want to know. And there were times when I would, yeah, I remember one time, it's my British mechanics always call it rattling the wrenches, where you'll, you know, uh, we went in, we picked the shocks, we went under there, we took a couple bolts out, put a couple bolts in, da, 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 da. okay, Alan, go. And we changed nothing. It was the same shocks. We just took some bolts out, rattled the wrenches under the car, and, and then he had to give us the answer. In that double, triple bolt, that was valuable, we thought. But when we're trying to hyper-focus a driver on, on a specific aspect of the handling of a car in a specific phase of a corner, uh, then I want them to, to really understand what I'm trying to do and what I expect it to do, and then give me an honest answer. And oftentimes, I can't tell is the best answer. Honesty is a lovely, lovely thing. I know it's something that that practice happens a lot in lower categories, open wheel, often training series, the, the very early training series on whatever ladder to formula one, IndyCar, etc., where teams will take a young driver often fresh out of karting or just fresh in general and make changes and not tell them what it is. Sometimes they make no changes. There's a placebo change. And just to get the driver familiar with, aha, I've come out of zero suspension. You basically, you know, you could add some cross weight through what you tighten or don't tighten on a cart. You can adjust tire pressures 
obviously there's some minor things you can do, but for the most part, an anti-roll bar to play with or shock settings or ride height or name a variety of things, spring rates. These are all things that are new. And so rather than take the long trip, a season or two or three of just these things happening naturally and the driver slowly adding them to their mental database. One of the great things you can do and has been done for many years, is just this. All right, little Billy <laughs> today, you're not setting a single lap meant for lap time. This is entirely about you're going to learn about what this feels like, what that feels like. And then towards the end of the day, we'll start talking about what it is you're feeling and what we change to do that. And we'll keep working on this so that you at least, you know, the feeling instead of the actual change or mechanical mechanical component that was altered. And so uh, it's training your behind training your hands and feet, not trying to put numbers and, you know, equations in your head. Let's just get your body attuned to a feeling or a variety of feelings. And then we'll come back and add in the, and this is what caused it part. So fascinating stuff. Yeah, I did. I remember Colin and I did a whole one solid day at Thunder Hill in a formula reno when he was just out of carts and all we did was change front roll centers, which is the geometry of the front of the car and rear roll centers, the rear geometry. And we tried about five different front roll centers and five different rear roll centers and combinations of all of those. And cause I said, if you can, if you can tell your engineer that, no, I don't think it's the springs. And it doesn't feel like the anti-roll bars. It's not even a shock. I think the roll center needs to be changed. It feels more like a roll center than any of those other things. I said, if you can do that, you will have a huge advantage over all your other competitors, all the other guys your age, you know, all the other 14-year-olds racing Formula Renaults. You will have a huge advantage. So let's go out and we'll spend a day and we'll just work on roll centers. And we'll, here's the geometry. Here's what it looks like. This is a 42-millimeter front roll center. Go drive it. Okay, got that. Now, here's the geometry. Get out of the car. Here's the geometry. This is a 58 centimeter, I mean, millimeter front roll center. Go drive that. And, you know, you get you get smarter kids who are faster and able to set their car up better and win more races for you. And that's what we're all after. Well, we've got a few more components we were thinking about discussing. I think, Jeff, since we've reached almost 25 minutes, let's save those other angles of race driver, race engineer communications for a future recording. Awesome. Knowing that we have what you're looking for communication style and feedback wise in practice, qualifying and race, and those being three very different things. We have another topic as well. Hopefully we will remember them of... (laughs) actual communication ability with drivers and in some cases we know driver there are some drivers some who've won championships indy 500s rolex 24s sebrings le mans you name it and couldn't tell the front of the car from the back of the car from a engineering standpoint and then there are some who can actually feel a lot of things but aren't necessarily adept at communicating those things. So someone who actually can provide decent feedback, but someone like yourself or myself back in the day would have to work with the driver and really parse through their ability to just simply communicate, uh, not a functional grasp of the language, just how do I translate what I was feeling into useful words for my engineer that in and of itself can be an education and journey. So, Absolutely. And then they'll be, they'll probably be Italian or French or German. And then it makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> or Californian or about, dude, or who right. knows where. Right. I've had those guys too. Yeah. He, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, Robbie Groff one time told me at Milwaukee, we're whipping around at Milwaukee in an Indy Lights car and he comes in and I say, how is it? And he's like, oh man. I don't know, dude. The car's just not talking to me yet. I'm like, all right. Yeah, cool. 
And wow. Robbie Groff was one of the best oval racer, Indy Lights uh, oval racers ever, but the car just wasn't talking to him yet. And so dude. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Dude, let's do more laps. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Maybe that great. maybe that was the Robbie Groff scale. Dude, dude, dude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the lap. The louder dude equates to a bigger change. All right. Right. All right. That was a chill, chill Californian that could rip on ovals. It was was fun. So anyway, yeah. All right. Another time, another story, another, another episode. I can't wait. All right. Well, enjoy your testing tomorrow, my friend, and look forward to speaking next week. Sounds good. Looking forward to it, Marshall. And, uh, I can't wait. We'll have we we're, our list of topics are growing, which is awesome because then we can do this more often. You know, Jack, I've been trying to pinpoint that accent of yours. Little did I know it was Charlotte, South Carolina, not the UK. You're driving NASCAR last weekend, my friend, <laughs> and you're driving the wheels off of things for Joe Gibbs Racing. How did it feel to be playing in a totally different background than IndyCar, IMSA, prototypes, GTs. I got to imagine your head was spun a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, to be honest, it was a little bit unexpected. Uh, It all came about very quickly. Um, Only found out Tuesday last week prior to the race. Um, I'd obviously watched, you know, watched bits bits of NASCAR and and stuff like that. And, um, was uh yeah was, was intrigued to say the least when the opportunity came around so um yeah it was it was very very interesting it was it was surreal to be honest to be walking into a paddock where you don't recognize anyone the only the only person i knew there you know driver wise team wise prior to um, prior to arriving was Austin Sindri huh. you know, when you're in the indie car and the the IMSA world um it's the same guys you see floating around in general, uh, as you as you well know. Um, so you, you know, whether you're in IMSA or you're in IndyCar, there's a lot of kind of familiar faces, and um, it was it was a unique experience to walk into a paddock and literally it almost felt like my first time in America again, where I was you know where I was coming in, um, really not knowing not knowing anyone, not knowing any of the teams, not knowing any of the people. But it was uh, you know it was an amazing opportunity and. Um, Absolutely, absolutely loved it. The, the Joe Gibbs team made me feel extremely welcome straight away, and uh, yeah, had uh, had a blast. It, you know, and, and the vehicle itself so different to anything I've ever driven before. I, I can't anyone who's not had the opportunity to drive a stock car on a road course, I can't tell you how different it is to to the you know I guess the more uh, conventional open wheel kind of GT machinery that. Um, I guess the the side of the paddock I've grown grown up grown up in is used to, and it was um, it was surreal really to step into that environment, and um, yeah, great opportunity, and, and absolutely loved it. So saw my friend and I believe one of your former competitors or rivals, Ryan Eversley, was there this weekend at Mid Ohio, but he was driving in the Stadium Super Truck Series, and I'm watching him, and I'm thinking this must be what it feels like for Jack going from racing a 18 million pound pounds of downforce Indy car at mid Ohio a couple years ago to an Xfinity car Toyota that is by comparison, probably rolling and feeling like it's <laughs> jumping through the air compared to that running, you know, half an inch off the ground, glued your forearms exploding from just trying to turn the wheel. How tell us about the experience of getting to know this Xfinity machine that I'm thinking dynamically, Jack, just had to be like, oh, really? Huh? Okay. It was. Yeah, it was like a different world. I didn't expect it to be honest, because obviously, initially, you know, I mean, I was driving with wheel cars. As you know, you touched upon, I drew an Indy car at Mid Ohio before. Um, then I moved to GT3 cars, and that's what I've been racing the last few years. And, and the jump from Indy car to a GT3 machine is, is pretty big in terms of obviously an Indy car. You have so much downforce. Uh, everything about the car is designed for racing. You jump into a, a GT car, quite a bit heavier less downforce, um, you know, mechanically just less advantageous for racing. Um, and that's a pretty, that was a pretty big shock. Initially, when I got into a GT car from an Indy car, you know, you have to 
adjust your style. You have to calm everything down a little bit. Everything takes a little bit longer um, to take a set and stuff. So that 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 was a big jump. But the jump from a GT to a NASCAR is five times um, five times that. Like the 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 weight of the vehicle, the braking zones, uh, the corner speeds are just so different. You have to be, you, if you start, try to even push remotely uh, close to kind of GT levels of performance in terms of, you know, try to break a break at a similar point, you would just, you know, play off the track. Like, you really have to back everything up. I can't tell you how. Um, it, was, it was strange psychologically because I'm used to going to mid-Ohio and you see the braking boards going into turn four. You see the braking boards going into the keyhole. In GP car, maybe you break it to 300 or the you know the 200 in an Indy car or or whatnot. Um, in the NASCAR, you don't even reach the braking boards; you have to break that early. So it was um, it was surreal, completely uh, completely different and uh, far more of um, a different than I expected. It was it was almost double triple um, the kind of jump when I went from an Indy car performance level to a GT performance level, and then to go to the NASCAR performance level. It was like another world. But then the crazy thing about it is you've got so much horsepower, right? So you've got the you know more horsepower than you have in a GT3 car, but you've got uh, you know one one fifth, one tenth of the grip. So completely different, but a lot of uh, a lot of fun. Other thing that it looked like, Jack, knowing that you're we were so quick in the car over a single lap. I mean, you're you picked up very quickly in practice. I've never tested, never done anything. What? In, you're second in qualifying, I believe. I mean, just a, a rocket uh, on individual pace. Then it seemed like in the race, which almost always happens at Mid-Ohio or any of the, the times where we have road course specialists come in for the first time, you learn a lot in a racing environment about contact. How much is too much? How much is too little? You learn about tire usage and management. If you don't have a spin, if you're not off in the grass, if someone doesn't turn you around, it's almost like you haven't done your first race properly, <laughs> at least from the outside. You know, obviously, I, I think I and everybody wanted to see you on the podium or something like that. But knowing how your race ended up, and maybe you can share a little bit about how the race went, I also came away saying, okay, he actually had the first race that he was supposed to. I hope the Gibbs organization or who knows who else might realize that, hey, when we come back next year or go to any other road course, we seriously need to have Jack Hawksworth on speed dial. Yeah, it was it was wild. The whole race was, like you say, there's, you know, it's one thing putting a lap together, putting a race together is obviously, um, obviously a different thing. Um, certainly the, the tire degradation, that, was, um, that, that caught me off guard initially. And one of the things with um, the Xfinity series is, I don't know if it's the same in Cup or not, but between um, qualifying and the race, it's basically part Fermi rules. So how you qualify the car is how you race the car. Um, it's not like you can adjust the setup between between quality and the race. So you you know other than other than tire pressures, and I guess you know, I guess you could do track bar potentially. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it, you've got what you qualify with, um, and I guess experience would tell me now perhaps should have been a little bit more conservative. Um, with the with the setup um, going into the race, based on the fact that um, the longer run is, is pretty pretty important, even though there were so many uh, <laughs> so many yellows. Um, and yeah, the race the race had a little bit of everything in it for me. To be honest, at the beginning of the first thing, I kind of uh, lost my rear tires a little bit. Um, was coming under pressure in, in third position. Um, got the old the bump and run, I think they call it, which was a little bit a uh, little bit different to, to to what I'm used to. Then we got going again. Um, had a good had a good first stop. Then the second stint, um, there was a lot of kind of restarts, which was great because it allowed me to kind of um, get back into the uh, into the fray of it. And uh, the restarts I actually really enjoyed. Um, I don't know if it was just kind of my road racing experience, but I was able to um, pick my way through through and get back into the get back into the top three, and then then eventually the lead. Um, then. I guess they do this. There's a stage um, in each race, but then when when the stage is over, you get the yellow. Anyone who's watched NASCAR see you get like this full course caution, um, and then everyone comes in and, and pits and and does the next stage. But unfortunately, on that stop, we then we then had a little issue 
Um, and then after that, I just got into the wars, was, was, was pretty much had contact with three or four guys, got turned around again, went through the grass a couple of times, and uh, and that was uh, <laughs> that was all that was all she wrote. But um, yeah, it had a, it had a little bit of everything in there, so certainly a lot of fun, and it was fun to race the other guys in NASCAR as well because they raced differently. Like in terms of aggression, there's a lot of nose to rear fender contact, which you don't really get in. Um, you know, in IMSA and IndyCar, but where there's less contact, there's not quite as much door to door. I guess coming from the ovals, they tend to leave each other alone on the outside a lot. So um, I found that you could hang around the outside of people easier than maybe you would if you're coming up against someone in IMSA or uh, an IndyCar where they would obviously just uh, run you out of road on the exit. Um, so the, the, the style of racing was different. It was aggressive, but aggressive in a different way. And it was just, um, yeah, com- completely different world, completely different world. Let's close on the inaugural Jack Hawksworth. Dang, this is a lot of fun, and I can't wait to do it again. Xfinity uh, appearance. What was the situation like, Jack, after the checkered flag coming to pit lane, climbing out of the car, talking with the team, maybe, I don't know, speaking with some of the drivers that you raced hard with? Just curious about the takeaway experience and maybe how you were received after completing your first race. Um, well, I have to say, I was I felt welcome the whole time. I mean, the team made me feel very, very welcome. Um, you know, the other drivers were, and obviously, I you know got bumped and run uh, twice. But yeah, I guess that's to be expected. I think that's just part part of the course um, in NASCAR racing. But off the track, everybody was 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 really pleasant. I felt like the series, um, you know, embraced me being there, and um, yeah, that that side it was good. The strangest thing is. The cars don't have any telemetry and you're not allowed any onboard video. So when you come in from a session, I'm so used to diving into the data and picking apart, you know, what's your teammate doing, understanding where you're fast on the circuit, <laughs> understanding where you're slow on the circuit, being able to watch the onboard and say, right, okay, next session I'm going to work on this, 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 and then, you know, hopefully I'll be, I'll, I'll be able to go a bit faster. There's nothing. You have no data and you have no video. So it's a little bit like going to the go-kart track and just, you know, you, you come you come back to the truck, you discuss with your engineer, you know, what the car did and, and what you're gonna to try for the next session. But there's there's nothing um in, in way of telemetry or video. What's for lunch? That's the big decision. What's yeah. for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was that was that was the most for me, most bizarre thing about the weekend was not being able to come back into the into the truck and, and look at data and look at video. Because I'm just so used to doing that. I've spent my whole you know, car racing career, um, looking at, you know, squiggly lines and there was none. So completely different. <laughs> well, let's move Jack and close the conversation on your primary job, your full-time job, that being a member of the aim with Vassar Sullivan IMSA GTD program in your awesome Lexus RCF GT threes starting to get down to the close of the season here. There was a point, obviously, where you guys were extremely strong. You and your teammate, Richard Highstand, you guys were certainly vying for a championship, have those two wins, of course, right now. You're sitting second, I believe, in the uh, the kind of the Sprint Cup version of the championship, but the full season long, seen some definite distancing to the entire field by the Meyershank Racing, the 86 Acura driven by Mario Fombacher and Trent Hinman, what's a mindset, Jack, going into these final rounds, knowing that the way IMSA's points happen to be delivered, if you're not within really strong striking distance, it's kind of hard to close the gap and staring at almost 40 points behind the leader right now, it looks like you could get up into second in the championship. Um, not saying a championship's totally out of the picture, but what's a mindset knowing that, boy, it's really hard to overcome a significant deficit, uh, even with four races left to go, the way the IMSA pays out its points? Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of the overall championship, in GTD at the minute, I think it's a fight for second, realistically looking at the points, other than an, an absolute capitulation from the um, from the 86 car. Uh, which I think is unlikely. Um, we, we're all kind of 
kind of fighting for second there. So obviously we want to do as well as we can in the overall. Um, to do that, we need to win races. Potentially out of the last two, I'd say for us, the RCF should work really well at DIR, um, should work well at um, Road Atlanta as well. Laguna might be the only kind of slippery banana for us if we, if we kind of judge upon previous year's performance. So um, potentially got two, two races which should be strong for us, one which is you know, may, maybe not our, our best suited circuit. So we, we hopefully we can do enough to, to get second in the championship. We've still got a shot at the Manufacturers Championship um, for Lexus. And then obviously the Sprint Cup, uh, we're very, very close to uh, first position in that. I think that there's a driver, uh, Robichaud maybe, who's switched between a couple of cars throughout the year and he's currently leading the standings with second. A few points, a few points behind. So we have a real, a real shot at that. So we like to, um, we like to try and win the sprint if we can, as I'm sure everyone else would. Um, and I feel like we've got a good. I think we feel like we've got a good chance at that. We, you know, the team, the ABS team's been been working really well on the year. We had a good test there at, um, at Virginia a couple of weeks ago. So I'm super excited to get back in back in the Lexus um, having driven the NASCAR for a weekend it'll, it'll be cool to get back in you know you, you sometimes forget how lucky you are to drive these you know these amazing cars that, that we drive um, and, and the epic performance that they can you know they can put out because when you drive you know something a little bit you know let's say uh, not quite as well designed for racing um, or quite as sophisticated electronically when you jump I think when you jump back in something like that it gives you a real appreciation for the kind of kind of cars we get to drive so I think we should have a good car and uh, I know Rich has done a great job all year so hopefully we can close with close with some strong results try win the sprint cup and um, like you say maybe uh, sneak up to second in the overall throw one final thing at you here and I'll, I'll do it in as as graceful a way as possible so someone who has watched you come over to the US watch you do really amazing things in pro Mazda and move on up the road to Indy, get to IndyCar, I think make some really strong impressions there. Unfortunately, the last team you were with was just hot garbage and uh, unfortunately remains hot garbage that didn't leave you in the place you should have been. But you found an excellent home in sports car racing. You have done great things both in prototypes and GTs now, winning uh, in effectively every class you've been in. Tell me about the state of happiness you're at with this aim with Vassar Sullivan team. And also tell me about general happiness. I won't name teams. I won't name anything, but I know I've received some inquiries from folks saying, Hey, Hawksworth, do you know if he's available? Uh, I love the fact that folks are still looking at you going, that's a guy to have. We want to have that guy on our team to win. Let's close on that. Uh, both where you're at now, happiness wise and how it feels to know that, I mean, hell, you're still a young guy, but you've been doing this a while, Jack, and you still have people saying, hey, if and when he's available, we want to talk. Yeah, it's been, um, it's, it's, I think, what, like about nine nine years, eight years now since I came to the States, and it was 20 when I came over to race Star Mazda, so it's been, um, been a hell of a ride. I've, I've obviously raced a lot of cars, uh, you know, raced for some some great teams, raced for some not-so-good teams, been in some good cars, been in some bad cars, so... Kind of experienced a full full spectrum of, of everything, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, I mean, at this at this point in time, I have to say I'm, I'm very happy with with Ain Vassar. Um, been great this year to get back on on the top step of the, the podium. Um, my relationship with Toyota and my relationship with Lexus that's something which I really treasure. Uh, that you know, the guys there have become like a family to me, to be honest. And uh, yeah, I, I love being able to represent you know, the team, the brand, um, and that's something I'm I'm proud of. And I think when you when you really believe uh, you know, believe in, in a set of people and you uh, you know, you feel like uh you you're working alongside and with good people, it gives you that extra motivation. So at the minute I go to the track and yeah, I don't just feel like I'm racing, you know, you're racing for yourself. You feel like you're racing for the for the guys who are working on the car. You feel like you're racing for the for the brand, the people who, you know, are behind but you know, behind behind the team, we're supporting the team. Um, there's no there's, and there's no better feeling than that. So I, I'm I'm very happy with with that. Um, obviously, 
I'm, I'm a competitor, and when I'm racing at the front, and you know, I know the weekend in the Xfinity series, I, I love you know going a wheel, wheel to wheel with those guys at the you know at the front on restarts, trying to make passes, trying to go forward. Um, I've enjoyed trying to do that all year in the in the Lexus, and um, it's always great. Um, I guess when people notice you're doing a good job from the outside, because um, it's a sport where I guess the outside view is not always reality, right? There's a lot that goes into uh, goes into winning a race or goes into you know even even in standing on the podium. But the guy who finishes sixth or seventh, he can have a great day, he can have a great performance. But to actually isolate you know one one man or one athlete kind of. Uh, and, and judge his performance is always difficult. So I'm grateful that you know there's obviously uh, you know people have noticed what I've done, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy where I am. But I always um, always want to push forward, and um, at the minute I'm, I'm in a great position, and um, yeah, just looking forward to looking forward to the future, looking forward to continuing to be competitive, continuing to you know become more rounded as a driver, become a better athlete, and. Uh, Hopefully, um, hopefully, stand on the podium again soon. It's been, uh, you know, I, I won two in a row earlier this year, having not stood on 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 a podium for a while, and now it feels like, uh, you know, too long since I've been on the top step again. So I'm kind of one race at a time at the minute. Really looking forward to the junior, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's see let's see what the future holds. But at the minute, I'm very happy, and uh, just want to win some more races. One of the many things I've always appreciated about you, Jack, you. Your last win came in June. We're in the middle of August and you're already bristling. You haven't had more. That, that's, that's why people are wanting to hire you, my man. On top of the natural speed, uh, there's, there's no happiness or satisfaction uh, if, if the last race wasn't a win for you. All right, my man. Well, thank you as always. Some funny stuff hearing about uh, trying to wrangle an Xfinity machine, but glad to see so many positive things are happening for you in your career and damn i feel old realizing you're only 20 years old when you came over here when i was covering you back then all right jack look forward to seeing you soon here brother steve bordelotti i gotta tell you it makes me so happy to see our lumberjack imsa gtd team from the great white north (laughs) Having success in IMSA, I'm telling you, if flannel is not, you can't BOP flannel. It is BOP proof. Tell us about <laughs> the success that you and the FAF Motorsports team have been having here on your full season IMSA GTD debut and what it feels like. Is this coming sooner than expected, later than expected? What, what's the general tone coming off back-to-back wins? Yeah, thanks, Marshall. That's uh, pretty cool. We know the uh, lumberjack pride's pretty pretty big here in Canada, but we, uh, yeah, I definitely wasn't expecting this run we've been on lately. That's for sure. We've, uh, you know, we felt we were ready for this. You know, I won't, uh, you know, won't lie. We we came into this hoping we would be ready to compete at the level we're at now, and uh, we definitely had a difficult start to the season with the incident at Daytona and bit of heartbreak there at Sebring followed by a little bit more heartbreak at Ohio so we uh, we felt the pace was there from the start it was just you know competing at this level is so difficult just so many things beyond just the pace of the car and being fast that need to come together so we were cautiously optimistic coming in but at the same time we definitely didn't underestimate the competition and truly how competitive the IMSA GTD field is but um, you know the IMSA ladder system we felt prepared us for you know, to be competitive in year one and hopefully that, you know, encourages other teams to make that jump from, you know, from cup ranks or Michelin pilot challenge into, into the GTD field. And that's really important aspect that you mentioned here. And one I wanted to touch on right away, which is just that it's not as if, I mean, granted the team has had experience as a professional outfit running high levels of GT racing here in the U S but this is a, call it ladder transition team. It's not something where you're parachuting in with trillions of dollars to buy the most opulent of everything. This is something where as a unit, the FAF program has worked its way up and I guess we could say graduated to where you are right now. Share some insights about that. 
because you are showing that you don't have to be insane in terms of, you know, financial benefactors. This isn't something where only trillionaires and CEOs of fortune 100 companies can come in and do this. I think you guys are demonstrating that. No, we're real people. We love selling cars. We love Porsches. We love all kinds of things, but this is attainable. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when I started with fast, I was driving the pickup truck with a triaxle, you know, trailer to events with our Porsche cup team and, you know, GT three cup challenge Canada. So it was, uh, you know, it all comes down to the, the human capital we've acquired since that time. You know, the core of our team is still those same four of us that used to pile into a, a Dodge pickup truck and drive to events with our triaxle trailer where we were the only team that didn't have a transporter. And then, you know, as we found some more success and were able to talk to the powers that be at FAST into investing a little bit more, a little bit more and proving ourselves through our results, you know, we're, we're so fortunate that the core of the team stayed together you know, through the transitions, you know, we dabbled a bit in GT3 Cup Challenge USA, obviously predominantly had our roots in, in Canada and uh, can, you know, you find, you learn so much from your competitors, I guess, and the GT3 Cup Challenge Canada is extremely, extremely competitive because there are a lot of dealers, you know, investing, you know, money into the series and supporting young, talented drivers throughout the way. And, you know, either you, you sink or swim at that level, right? You, find a way to learn and get better and compete with them or you, you know, you find yourself out of it pretty quick. So thankfully we were able to have enough staff that was, I felt intelligent enough to, to put a competitive car on the track and we were able to do that and find some success with the GT3 cup challenge Canada. And then obviously some races that we dabbled in here and there in the United States when it was a bit too cold in Canada to, to be on track. And yeah, and then we found ourselves here. Let's talk a little bit about Canadian pride, Steve. And it's something that as someone who has spent many years of his life racing throughout Canada, it's usually on the open wheel side. I've been there a few times to run uh, like world challenge GT team or do some engineering, but by and large trips to Canada, whether it's uh, French Canada, AKA practice France, uh, but more Western English speaking uh, from uh, British Columbia to Toronto, etc. cetera, uh, spent a lot of my life racing in Canada. And if you all would accept me, uh, I'm sure my wife and I would move, but just absolutely love it. Know how much passion there is for racing in Canada. Can you share some, some insights on what it's like coming home as the winner or just being obviously not only a positive representative of your home country, but having some real success. What have you felt among fans? Uh, those who are connected to the FAF world there, what's it like coming down to the good old United States of America and putting in some good work and coming home with trophies? Yeah, I think we as Canadians have this weird obsession with proving ourselves. It's never good enough if you're the best in Canada. You know, you always have to, go to the United States to prove how, you know, if you're any good or not, it's like, it doesn't really count until you can, can win in America. Right. So I think that's a, a cultural thing. Us Canadians seem to struggle with it's like a, our version of little man syndrome or something that we're not great until you can prove it in the United States, but it feels, uh, feels great to, you know, to be a true, you know, as Canadian outfit as we possibly can, you know, we're, we're based in Toronto 12 months out of the year. we, for Daytona, we were loading the trailer. It was minus 41 degrees Celsius when we were loading up our trailer to head down to Daytona. So that was, uh, yeah, doesn't get much more Canadian than that, right? And, uh, yeah, like predominantly our team is Canadian. So we, we do get a lot of support, you know, when we return home. And, you know, even when we're around the airports, it's it's funny that how many people truly do follow the IMSA WeatherTech Championship. I, obviously, being a fan of it, you tend to, sometimes feel you're a bit too close to it to really understand how big of a deal it is to compete at this level as a Canadian team. But when you, you know, when you're sitting at the gate on that flight to Toronto and you're surrounded by Canadians, it's cool. And we're all in our fast gear for people to check in and ask and say, Hey, you know, it's pretty cool that you're able to compete at that level and, and, uh, find success. It's been, uh, it's been cool, but it's also, you know, we're a little ways away from 
where we want to be. You know, obviously the last two races have been amazing, but we want to be there competing for a championship, not just for race wins. Let's talk about drivers a bit. Steve, looking at the original full-time lineup this year, uh, that's modified a wee bit, had some really solid support from Porsche Motorsport in terms of factory talent coming in and helping, whether it's for the long races, but also we've seen some of the young guns play a role even in the shorter races. Uh, Zach Robichon's obviously been a through line through it all. I uh, believe Scott Hargrove is meant uh, to return to the program here. Share some thoughts about the drivers that have been involved, and I'll admit to being a little bit weak on understanding the uh, the brief step back by Scott. Yeah, so the, the situation with the drivers was something that wasn't planned from the start. We uh, found ourselves struggling you know, through the first half of the season, and we felt that, you know, not, we weren't pointing the fingers at Scott by any means, you know, Scott's been a huge part of our program and how we got to where we are. And we owe so much of our collective success to Scott. Um, but, you know, it got to a point where we were finding some struggles and we were wanting to ensure that we were able to keep this program going long-term with the, you know, board of directors here at FAF. We wanted to show them some success and ensure that we can put some pieces to the puzzle in that, you know, guaranteed or not so much guaranteed, but, you know, gave us the best shot at, you know, proving that we're executing at a high level and, you know, and to Scott's credit, it's was not an easy conversation to have with Scott and, you know, not to let him feel like, you know, he was a scapegoat by any means, you know, like I said, we owe so much of our success to him and there's, you know, people who can handle that sort of bad news, if you will, and people who can't. And we're, we're so fortunate that, you know, Scott didn't let that become a distraction within the team. You know, we had him on, on site at, at uh, Lime Rock and Road America. You know, he was part of the team. <laughs> he was one of our, you know, a great crew guy as well. And I'm sure, you know, Scott, he's incredibly mechanically inclined. So it's like, now I got a hole to fill on my team, you know, with him not having his physical labor around. He's got to go back <laughs> to driving. But yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he does such a great job of, you know, taking this as a learning experience for himself. And I, I don't doubt that he'll come back stronger. And, you know, I commend him for not letting that become a distraction within the team because he could have easily, you know, been, oh, why me or poor me, everyone feel bad for me type of thing. But, you know, he didn't, he was, uh, he took it on the chin. He, you know, stood tall and definitely was part of the team and was genuinely happy for our success. And I think that'll prove long-term throughout his career that, you know, he's truly the guy we want as part of our program and he's going to be, you know, a successful driver for many years to come, you know, barring this minor setback. Let's close on a little bit of a personal note, which I just take great joy in. So one of your lead mechanics, I believe crew chief, Gary Pennison, known him (laughs) since he was about, well, I'm exaggerating when I say three, but he was truly a young pup. His dad, Gary Pennison, senior, old old family friend of thomas knapp who uh worked for and worked with for many years and you know from atlantics to indy lights to uh indy car and gary jr well his dad was our refueler uh when we debuted in the indy racing league in 1997 and gary was a brand new rookie mechanic uh one of our one of the elder mechanics nicknamed him jimmer no idea why i don't think it's stuck but whenever i see gary i think jimmer it's just great to see him. I guess I'm in as equally as a unexpected place all these years later, reporting on sports cars instead of doing, you know, being on the team side. But what's it like having this crazy Michigan product uh, helping you out there? Because we loved him to death. We thought he was a nut, uh, but uh, I'm so happy. I just don't know how he fits in with the uh, the crazy Canuck routine. <laughs> well, his nickname with us is Grandpa Gear Bear. So we, uh, he's the oldest guy on our team by a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, uh, he's our honorary Canadian for sure. He's been such a great fit. You know, we met him through Joe LaJoy, who was our engineer last year. We were in a different series. Uh, you know, he knew Gary and when Gary found himself, you know, looking for a job, you know, Joe recommended him and I respect Joe a ton and his opinion and, uh, got to know Gary a little bit and we found, uh, 
a place within the team where I felt I was weak and I could lean on his expertise. And he was a perfect fit with all my guys. You know, everyone on my team respects him and respects his accomplishments. He has a ton of accomplishments, as you very well know. And we definitely, um, you know, lean on his success. And also, you know, he's taught us a lot about, you know, we don't always have to be the last team <laughs> to leave the track, despite how hard, you know, we, we want to work and being showing up prepared, how important that is. And yeah, I, I couldn't think, you know, obviously Gary's been an incredible fit from a personal level and he's become a, a personal friend, but at the same time, just helping our team level up is, is we owe so much to Gary and his, you know, his experience and just his ability to get the most out of people through, you know, through his own personal experiences. I love it. Grandpa Gare Bear. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm having t-shirts made as we speak. That's the best. Perfect. Well, Steve. Yeah. Toronto Motorsports isn't far. We can pick up I mean, down. you know exactly where I'm going first. We got to get that made. I love it. Well, so happy for you, Steve, and the team. And, and I, I'm not over-serving this. Sports car racing, Indy car racing is made all the better when we have truly successful Canadian teams involved and Canadian drivers. Just really makes me happy that beyond proving this is a team that can win and should be expected to win at every round, we're also bringing in our friends from the north to really just amplify where IMSA is going. So congratulations to you. And hey, got a couple more chances this year. We're not saying you're done, right? Not saying you're happy with two wins. I know you'd like to get one or two more, but great to see the FAF team step forward also great to see Porsche really embrace you guys as a, a very powerful new partner in IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship GT Daytona Paddock yeah, Thanks Marshall the uh, folks at Porsche have been incredible you know it's, it's real customer racing for sure and definitely allowing us to, to cut our teeth at this level and hopefully we have a few more wins to come before the year's out <laughs>